John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 775.PR1320, certificate number 43519, Mensa. Uh, Oh, pick me, teacher! I'm ever so smart! I want to preface this show um, by acknowledging the fact that probably... That we are on native land. uh, I want to preface this show by saying we are on stolen native land. We should do a land acknowledgement at the start of every podcast. We apologize for having invaded and and stolen this land. This basement was once Salish basement. That's right. It was a Salish basement. They used to have those uh, costumes, I guess, in the closet over there. Although it's possible that futurelings, uh, in in their excavations of past civilizations, need to go down so many layers to find the old longhouses that they really think that whatever you and me... Uh, our our civilization were like the original native inhabitants of this land. So we should make it clear. My assumption would actually be the other way, that the Northwest Coastal peoples are going to retake this land from us oh. very soon, probably by force. You're here. <laughs> I'll surrender immediately. I am not picking up a tomahawk. And then, so this will just be a brief interregnum when, oh, I see. you know, there'll be a tiny little layer of uh, of AOL CDs in, hmm. the, in the strata. And then... It, it, but it'll just be like a brief moment in a thousand-year reign of, of indigenous people in the Northwest. You know, the tribes do have uh, somewhat exclusive rights to harvest gooey ducks, which we know are the food that powers the future. Every great tri- every great <laughs> military triumph. So, yeah, it's uh, only a matter of time. They're going to have the strong masculine power that comes from sucking down gooey ducks. I will surrender to the to the new Duwamish. The <laughs> I, new Wamish. <laughs> I too welcome our <laughs> new gooey duck wielding overlords. So uh, what did you want to acknowledge before oh, I I just want to acknowledge in addition to the fact uh, that we are on stolen native land that uh, a lot of futurelings probably if you're going to do a show on Mensa uh on any of the networks the the omnibus uh the omnibus futurelings audience Probably has a larger sort of base level Mensa potential Mensa membership uh, relative to say Joe Rogan's show. <laughs> We're Mensa friendly, a little bit Mensa friendly, and I'm guessing that some futurelings, some some presentlings certainly are Mensa affiliated, but maybe uh, uh, the futurelings, maybe Mensa becomes the the primary fraternal and 
sorority uh, organization of the future. They could be the government. This could be subversive mm. material in the year 10,001. It is true, that, and we'll get to this in the show, that IQ scores, um, you know, IQ is a, is a measurement of uh, of intelligence with the with a with the mean established as one hundred, but uh, raw IQ scores have been uh, over the la- over the twentieth century going up across all sort of developed nations. Although it may, the, the, the Flynn effect, the I Flynn believe. effect, the who uh, Flynn wrote the bell curve. Flynn's that, a guy who got a lot smarter over the course of his life. He's he's the Flynn from Tron. He designed yeah. space paranoids, and that made him super smart. Yeah, from the master control program. Yeah, Flynn's book, The Bell Curve, is is hotly contested and discredited in in a lot of its conclusions. But it, it he did he did discover, I guess, within the within the data that IQ scores, at least in the twentieth century, were on the rise. Uh, and Despite that, all evidence to the contrary, when you drive or go on the internet, am I right? Woo! <laughs> Anyway, we're going to talk about Mensa today and, and, you know. And we apologize. And we apologize. For all the jokes we make. Yeah, there are going to be some jokes at Mensa's expense. Because a lot of you, we know, just put, put down a fun logic puzzle just to listen to this show. That's right. You were right in the middle of it. You were like, Sally is not sitting next to Dinah, but Dinah ordered the steak. And you're, you got your little, your chart. <laughs> you were figuring it out. And then you were like, oh, there's a new omnibus. And then you're like, oh, Mensa, oh, Mensa, that's going to be like a, oh, this is, and then we're just going to dive right in, (laughs) taking Mensa down a peg. I think we'll be moderately pro-Mensa and Mm. much of its ethos. Yeah, we will, look. We'll we'll, we'll teach the controversy. This is maybe the first show we've ever done where not only have we started talking about the topic right off the top, but we're already apologizing (laughs) for, for the show to our to our listenership that we're 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 like pre-imagining is mad. So maybe if the show always started with some kind of apology, oh, we, we would get to the topic sooner. Well, we're going to start apologizing for being on stolen native land, and then apologize for the topic. Because what might happen if I were doing this episode is it might be like uh, you know I, I'd try to get into Mensa this way. Hey, uh, hey, John, when did you first consider yourself a smart guy? Yeah, and then an hour later, <laughs> when when the story about your fourth grade teacher ends. <laughs> I'll be like, ooh, so Mensa. Well, let's let's uh, let's go back to the start then, and start that way. You're you are uh, you're you know famously America's boy genius, and yet I'm whipping up a few inventions in the basement as we speak. Right. Uh, yet, as you know, as uh, you're at you're at pains to at least in interviews, kind of try and disabuse people of the notion that you're some kind of super genius, that your your talent at Jeopardy is the result of uh, uh, of any kind of like massively superior intellect and although i know that you're pandering to people and, oh, not and you really you know you really think that you like are. you really think i'm thinking i will one day i will destroy you all with my <laughs> giant brain like if i can just find the right frequency i can explode your heads just by thinking about it but it, but to the interviewer i'm like hey hey uh, mike anybody can do anybody it anybody can do it mike just, just uh, it's just a matter of curiosity i see a look in your eye all the time that suggests you're trying to exploit uh, explode my brain from across the table <laughs> i know you're trying it's like between episodes hurry up but at what point in your life, in your young life, did you feel like you were being, you had been singled out or were starting to be treated differently by teachers and guidance counselors and parents that, that people, you know, were kind of either whispering that Ken was special or, um, 
or saying it outright, or did that ever happen? Definitely as soon as school started. Like at home, you really have no peer group. I mean, you got the kids next door or a bunch of ding-dongs at Sunday school or, or whatever. none of them peers. <laughs> Not to me. I mean, age peers. Oh, I see. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> uh, so... I think it wasn't until school started where, you know, suddenly there's a big enough sample size for you to see, oh, I'm the only one that gets trooped out of, I got sent out of my kindergarten class every day to go to a reading group in the, you know, whatever the highest level classroom in the building was. And it was a K through three. So it was just a third grade classroom. Right. But while everybody else was kind of practicing drawing the letter C and then a little letter C, like I got bumped up to third third grade. And you can't not notice that. And you can't not take a little pride in whatever the thing about you that that gets adults buzzing even in kindergarten it's it so it, i was ruined yeah right human development is is such Maybe that you especially can in kindergarten. already have a huge amount of pride at being singled out and and treated differently for your intelligence for a thing that's not you couldn't it's not that you could throw a baseball I have a, a, I have a theory that kids are, are very aware that they're not grown-ups so anything you can do that approaches, you know, anything, any competency that impresses adults feels grown up. Right. And I might be throwing a baseball, but you know that adults are reading the, the paper. So if you were reading the paper, I think you were like this as a kid. Yeah. So if you're, if you're reading the paper, you, it's not just that you feel like I'm ahead of grade level. You feel like I'm, I'm a little grown up. I'm sure I, I have some, I have some, uh, what, some competency in the world. Yeah. I have opinions about Henry Kissinger. I'm, <laughs> I feel <laughs> I feel very strongly that the Watergate burglars should be prosecuted. But that said, when today when I am when I am asked about being a smarty pants on a game show, and I kind of downplay it, it's not it's not fully. Um, I mean, a little bit is discomfort with the thought of being different, and discomfort at the associations that go with that kind of personality. Like maybe we'll talk about this in Mensa. You know, there's a certain idea of what that person might be like socially or emotionally right. that I don't really identify that closely with. And I'm trying to create a little gap there. But in general, I think it's because I think rightly or wrongly that there's, that it's, it's really just a, a parlor trick, the kind of stuff that people are asking about, like knowing all your state capitals or whatever. That's, that's not such a, that's not a good stand in for actual intelligence, right? Right. Uh, and I kind of want to make that clear that, you know, just because I grew up playing trivia games and, you know, pouring over road atlases, like you could break your brain that way too. Like whatever the thing is you're curious about, you probably have Jeopardy level competency in those areas. So it's just a slightly wider net that creates the, the quiz kid. There are all kinds of futurelings right now gazing over at their Watchmen comics and going, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a genius level. I'm a genius level at knowing what uh, knowing the plot lines of Wolverine's but life. You are. It's yeah. true. But like what if all that time you spent reading uh New Mutants comics, you know, instead you'd been looking at uh Grolier's desk encyclopedia. <laughs> and, and that's my childhood. <laughs> well, the desire to <clears throat> the desire to test children uh, at a very young age to determine who's gifted, who, you know, the kids that are, uh, to, well, to really to put children on a graph, identifying them both as children that need special help or children that, you know, that are not, not, um, up to grade level. Yeah. Performing up to grade level. And then children that are exceeding grade level. I mean, this is, this is part of a kind of, uh, 
I wouldn't say fallacy, but a desire to systematize the um, the ineffable, right? To take uh, to you take measure it somehow. Yeah, to take kids and put them on a graph, and to 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 make intelligence, which is kind of this, you know, impossible to define matrix of of talents and skills and and deficiencies, and you know, reduce it to a number or put it into a uh, put it into a place that we can then. You know, in a way, it's it's part of the industrialization of education, the industrialization of of human beings to kind of know what shape your block is and how it's going to fit into a larger system. And it's not just a bureaucratic impulse, because even no. in a one-room schoolhouse, you would want to know which of your kids need special help in that area, which of your kids would be more would be better suited with the older kids. But in a one-room schoolhouse, you would know. I mean, the teacher yes. would intuitively know by personality who's going to who's going to respond to what and, you know, that's part of But to track it year to year and right. to see which areas are doing better than others and, you know, how apportionments should go. But even more, I think it's a desire that a parent has mm -hmm. um, because how your child is doing, how what your child's intelligence is or how they're performing, it, it ultimately, as you and I know, only Not, reflects... Nothing but a referendum on me. <laughs> only reflects on your, your talent and quality I'm as an adult who votes. Who cares what, what, about the kid's ego? <laughs> so, you know, every parent wants that validation. And also, I think every parent is insecure to a certain extent. Is my kid okay? Is my kid doing well? Um, it's astonishing how much grown-ups are invested in their kids being, I guess not astonishing, but it's very true in our modern era in sort of post-mid-century America that um, parents really want their kids to be gifted, a certain kind of parent. And there's a, there's a kind of gifted explosion that happens in your and my childhood, really, was the heyday. All of, the children are above average. Yeah, right. It's, uh, and it's funny because every single, every single experience you have in parenting teaches you how little control you have over the little genetic puzzle that was given to you you know, fully constructed. But we all look at our kids and go, wow, I can't believe that she salted her own toast. And it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, salting your toast is not on this. It's not really one of the tests. No, no, no. But she, you, or, from a young age. Or worrying the other way. Like, I feel like he, my son salted his, had salted his toast by this age. Yeah, right. It seems weird that, it seems weird that my son put so much salt on his toast. Is that too much salt? I should, he should be... I should get him some tests. <laughs> you want to test either way. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the illusion of control. You want to feel like you can get in there under the hood and, uh, and solve it with whatever it is and whatever, with, you know, with piano lessons or with a tutor or with better friends, you know, you want to tinker because that's the, that's the human impulse. And you really can't. They, they're, they're, uh, kids are Apple products, not, not Android products. Right. They pretty much come out of the box. <laughs> right. You don't get to, you don't get to adjust the parameters as much as you would like. No. I think that um, now, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not as aware. It's strange to to think, but not as aware culturally, socially, like how much of the um, how much of the expectation that sort of drove the way we, you and I were educated in the 1970s and 80s, how much that's really changed now? Because you were just talking about the fact that Dylan. Uh, has uh, toward the end of high school decided that maybe being a dentist is a good job because it pays well and he doesn't have to work that hard. He's also, I, I didn't finish this story, which is he's also very interested in fishing right now. Yeah. He has a friend who fishes and even though he owns no tackle or gear, he's like, yeah, I think, I think fishing is new, my new identity. And, uh, and as a result, 
<laughs> he's looking at jobs with you know fisheries, NOAA, BLM, oceanography. He's looking at which schools have the best ichthyologically relevant right. courses. We, I should st- I should say to futurelings who may be confused, BLM in this context is the Bureau of Land Management and no, not Black Lives no, Matter. No, it's Black Lives Matter. Oh, are they? He uh, wants to major in. The not, ichthyological not, aspect. Not enough people of color are fishing, John. Is that right? No, that's not true at all, actually. No, I, think I feel like color, they're probably overrepresented. Yeah, they love to fish. They're overrepresented. I, when, I, as, when I say they, I mean all people of color. <laughs> <laughs> to a man or a woman or genderqueer person, they just love fishing. But when I was growing up, there was a very clear sense that success was a path, that success was something you could measure both as a degree of like educational achievement, professional achievement, uh, economic sort of accomplishment. It's, it's the game of life. It's, it's in, of in, life. imagining life as a game board where you can advance closer and closer to certain goals and to keep track of whether you're ahead of, of the other players. And we, I, I think we have a sense that the millennium generation was raised to think more uh, that uh, more that success happened across a broader scope that you could be creatively successful, that your goal was to be emotionally successful. I think that's often levied as a criticism against that generation because they're, they um, have unrealistic expectations. But I don't know if that's actually true or if people like your son's age feel the pressure to be financially successful, to be in a profession that... I almost wonder if the recessions these the younger generations have lived through, you know, two in the last, what, decade? Right, decade. Uh, you know, that's very formative for them. And I wonder if that's going to be kind of a Depression-era formative thing where Make they... Make them all conservative. Makes them, well, yeah, makes them more worried about, uh, you know, making choices that'll keep the utility bills paid. And they will be the ones who are not majoring in Italian Renaissance literature. For for me, the the most frustrating thing for the adults in my life was the fact that my uh, performance, my success in school, did not correlate at all with my test scores. It's the worst case scenario for a parent. Really awful. The test scores suggested that that um, that school would be easy for me, and even the word underachieving kind of assumes that everyone who's doing bad at school could do better. Sure, if they would just. If they would just achieve, sit up straight. All you have, have to do is. Have just, you thought about it? If I were getting bad grades in school, I would simply achieve. Sure. I mean, it occurred to me. <laughs> uh, Did anybody sure. ever sit you down and say, "Hey, John, how much are you achieving now? Have you thought about achieving more?" I don't think you're achieving uh, <laughs> as much as you could achieve. And I was like, "Hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fair enough, right? Right? Yeah, I think you're right." <laughs> I mean, based on <laughs> yearly performance <laughs> review, based on this conversation alone. Uh, but intelligence as a measurable thing is kind of an idea that ca- that came out of the 19th century desire to measure everything. Um, we were trying to measure. I mean, initially trying to trying to determine how uh, productive and useful in society people would be by measuring the size of their skulls. Uh, <laughs> but we were also you the know. first intelligence test was a caliper. <laughs> We were trying to measure... The test is much quicker. You don't have to, like, move blocks around. Well, sure, but you have to take into consideration the bridge of the nose, you know, how close the eyes are together. I mean, it's a whole... I feel like there were haircuts you could get that would give you a better phrenological result. Yeah. So, again, it favors the rich who can can get nicer, go to nicer salons. Certainly from a distance, if you have a nice haircut (laughs) that kind of conceals the the pin at the top of your skull. You're you're the dense of... uh, of, uh, Whatever your little dumb Kevin indentations in your head are, 
just hide those with a like cow lick or something. For me, you know, I keep my hair uh, just long enough to hide all the scars. Is that uh, like emotional scars? No, well, those too. I mean, the the when my hair goes over my ears, you can kind of you start to see that I that I relax a little bit because I'm not I don't feel so exposed. My ears are aren't in the wind. You really can feel the air moving on the back of your neck, and it kind of makes you like a little rabbit when yeah. you get, when you get your hair cut too short. It's like the time I I tried contact lenses and walked out into the world without my glasses, and I felt like for no, I was in the middle of the city, but I felt like a bird was going to fly into my face. Do you think that's how Superman feels? I was just like, there's there are just birds everywhere. What do people do? <laughs> they could just fly into your face at any moment. You've had this body armor the whole time. I know. And you, you never even. I didn't even realize my glasses were just bird shields. I do not find long hair to be comforting though. I find it to be a little bit irritating. You keep your hair short. You well, do. It's just, it's always rubbing. I don't want to, mm. I don't want, every time I, I, I turn my head to the side. I don't want to feel touched in 80 places. Yeah, I like that. Rubbing. Leave me alone here. You like, find you find it comforting. I like that touching, yeah. I want to I'd be touched by a person there. I don't want to be touched by I don't want to be tickled by little hairs. You are being touched by a person yourself. <laughs> it's just another My own best friend. A little hair onanism. Hair. hair is the best friend that will never leave <laughs> unless you're a man in middle age. But um so, so intelligence, I mean, you know, people like Einstein, people that made incredible advances in kind of human understanding pr- prior to the 19th century, you know, you know our, our, our super smart people in, uh, that we remember through history were all polymaths, right? They were, yeah. no one identified as a biologist. They were doing biology and doing chemistry and and writing philosophy. A smart was, person did everything. A smart person like, did Like everything. Thomas Jefferson or Da Vinci. But but in the 19th century, as things became more and more industrialized, we started also to see intelligence as a thing that could kind of be siloed, right? Einstein never did any biology, really, or... Um, Probably because he sucked at it. He was pretty bad at biology. He flunked out of yeah. biology, and then he had to do physics as his backup. So, so we start to think of people as having like intelligence that is sort of separate from well-roundedness. Einstein's an interesting case too, because it may be the first kind of celebrity of, um, of, of being a, a genius and not just a genius. Like I love this guy's novels, but like something about his brain gives yeah. him super brain powers and we need to, you know, study his brain. Like, I don't think that was in the popular consciousness before the early 20th century. It's kind of a version of the great man theory of history, right? That if Einstein hadn't just in this one, uh, this one corporeal form existed, maybe we would still not know about relativity. Do you right? buy it? No. I mean, just as if, if there, if there were no Napoleon, Maybe uh, that many French people wouldn't have died outside of Moscow that particular winter. But some winter. But some winter, eventually, right? That the, the French and the Germans and the Russians were all going to collide against each other somehow. And and it, it's arguable that if World War One hadn't happened, that maybe we would have had this generation of of fin de siècle poets and craftspeople that would have made a a utopian world and we'd all be in flying cars now. It's it's interesting that the previous great men are all military because that's what changes lives when technology is pretty stagnant. Right. You're not like this guy made a better plow. Like I'm getting so much more soybeans. It's really more like I'm not speaking French now and it's all because of King whoever, you know? <laughs> so those become your geniuses. And then you, you kind of romanticize his tactics at the battle of whatever. Um, yeah. but, but that goes away when technology advances because the things that affect your life daily have more to do with, uh, 
a certain kind of scientific genius than than military. Yeah, I guess prior to the Enlightenment, all the non-military geniuses were all monks. <laughs> and then in the they had no fan group at all. In the Enlightenment, we get these sort of secular monks who are uh, instead of counting how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. They're counting how many... How many P chromosomes can make the P twist counterclockwise. Yeah, right. But the po- common person doesn't know. You know, other monks are like, you know who's doing good work? You know, but except for a tiny group of people passing parchments via raven or whatever, uh, you know, it doesn't affect normal people's lives. Right. There weren't there weren't a ton of people like hanging on Augustine's every word that were just <laughs> like in got, the streets. Augustine's got a new encyclical out, everybody. <laughs> everybody runs to the stamp store. <laughs> Uh, but in the, you know, by the 20th century, this kind of thing, and this is also, you know, there's, we have now at, at that point in the United States and in the UK kind of a, a notions of universal education that, um, and, and also ideas that education is going to, um, is going to make the utopia possible by, by lifting up uh, the the mass of people out of a state of ignorance and into a world where they're they're ready to be governed by philosophers. It's a progressive cause. Today yeah. we would think of it as a you know a social justice cause. You know, and then they all turn into eugenicists in five minutes. Sadly, but 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 the um, you know the notion that education is going to be a thing that. Um, that has these far-reaching consequences. It's still, still something we all ascribe to. Still we all, something we all assume it. I think we assume it. Yeah. But and I, and you could make a case that the experiment of universal education over the last hundred and fifty years has not produced um, a generation of philosopher kings. Are you better uh, off than you were hundred years ago, John? <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't know if I am. I'm trying to think if uh, if if education has really panned out at as much as we as sort of hoped and assumed it would. There are a lot of assumptions, right, that that people live, that people have um, prejudice because they lack information and that you can... If, if people were smarter, they would be more like me is often the underpinning, right? Right, right. But it's, and certainly if people had more education, how could they maintain like simplistic biases? Um, but... Those are harder to shake than it seems, right? Yeah, right. And, and education isn't uh, the the um, the panacea that I guess we that, that it's natural to assume um, would I mean the the root question is does it make you happier to be smarter I guess and I don't I have, know I don't I, know. I have not found that to be true I have yeah I can't think of a subject <laughs> where that's true I can't think of something I where I read up on it and then I felt more reassured yeah so, you know, the question is, how much bliss is there in ignorance, I guess? So, Ken, we're getting uh, we're getting close to the holidays here coming up, and it's time to uh, encourage people to get some Omnibus merchandise. We've been remiss in providing Futurelings with the opportunity to have new, fresh merchandise to advertise their favorite podcast. If you are a bipedal... Omnibus Futureling with uh, one head and two arms. You don't have to be bipedal. You could have seven legs, but two arms and a head. Or rather, three appendages of any kind that you want to clothe. You need bilateral symmetry, or you're going to have a bad time. You could buy if you hold a mirror up to the side of your to the center of your face right now, center line of your face, and if it looks more or less like you, you are eligible for this. 
shirt. If you had six appendages that were waving wildly, two of them larger than the other four, you could buy two omnibus t-shirts and cover the joints, cover the, uh, the connecting areas between your different tentacles. Unless you live in a society where knobs, where non-nudity is taboo. Oh, sure. And then also you can only wear your omnibus t-shirts at home in your, the privacy of your own reef or shell. Uh, thanks to our friends at Mediocrity, we have uh, two. We've returned the two t-shirts that we had a couple of years ago. Omnibus and Futurelings are for sale through October, and then going forward, two new designs every month. With um, with we promise more stuff coming soon. We want. Uh, what do we want? Mugs and stickers and yep. face masks. Bound Some- transcripts of all of our episodes bound in, in corduroy with gilt labels. Somebody requested a onesie, which would require oh. us to have sexually active listeners who are reproducing. I believe that. Or or adopting. Or adopting. Yeah. Well, there's other ways to reproduce. You don't think adoption counts as reproduction? Um, I, I'm not qualified to answer that You question. could definitely drop the sexually active part. I'm with you there. Right. Uh, and so and the place to keep the one location to keep an eye out for all of this is on the web at omnibusproject.com slash store. Yeah. Omnibusproject.com slash store. That's great. We're like a real podcast now and everything. And we're going to fill that store up with merchandise. We're going to have no name brand, uh, <laughs> omnibus merchant merchandise that just says generic canned tomatoes with yeah. the omnibus logo Podcast. on it. Podcast. Oh, that's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah, podcast. podcast. Oh, wait a minute. A yellow shirt that just says podcast? In the omnibus font, maybe. Come on. That All should right. be up there soon. So check out omnibusproject.com slash store for these and other brainstorms. One of the side effects, I think, of of a recognition of genius as a, as you were saying, kind of a a separate class of kind of being come into the world not somebody that just read a lot and thought a lot but uh a kind of super uh, it replaces sainthood right right and it's and it's post nietzsche it's a kind of ubermensch notion yeah. that there are super beings uh it filters down to i guess what you would call the class of regular smarts people that aren't uh trying to destroy their friends with uh laser laser eyes like you do but people that recognize that you know they're they're gifted they're took they're taken out of their kindergarten class and put into the third grade reading group and there is a lot of social exclusion social difficulty that happens it's you you feel a lot of pride because the grown-ups have singled you out mm-hmm. but when you go back to your kindergarten class it's not like you're universally welcomed and celebrated by the other kids in some ways, quite the opposite. Yeah. I think in general, the opposite. That's, that's why I often kept it under my hat. Yeah. Like right. You, you just still do. You know, just spouting. Like I remember in second grade, like just getting really into this. Um, some kid had just gone to Africa and had brought back some uh, little statue of a, of some kind of antelope. And the teacher was like, do you know what kind of antelope this is? And he was like, I don't know. It's just an antelope. And the teacher was like, oh, well, maybe somebody can figure out who it was. And like, for me, that was like catnip. Like, of course, I spent, you know, six, the next six recesses in the world book trying to figure out what kind of antelope that was. And I remember that it was like a, it was a lechwe. Is that the name of a thing? There you go. It was, I still remember that it was a lechwe. And I, uh, somebody's going to bully you about this. 
I would deserve to be bullied. I wrote a little, I wrote, like I wrote a report for myself, you yeah. know, with a, and drew a picture of a lechwi. And, uh, and what you were really doing is just really outshining this kid and, and taking away all the fun of his little statue. I'm not aware of, of how competitive it was because uh, I think I started to become aware after the fact that, yeah, nobody else is, is really doing that. And even if the teacher showers approval on you, you know, that, that causes backlash from your peers who yeah. will not shower approval on you. And as a result, like I spent decades of my life trying not to do re- repeat the Lechwe incident and just to act like a normal. Well, and you were you were in special circumstances being in a being in a kind of well, in a, a it's a weird little terrarium being in an international school. International school and yeah. and and a private school. Yeah. Uh if you had been in a giant American high school, I think you would have found that was a, I'd be dead. Way, way more <laughs> the case that I'd nobody st- wanted to hear your Lechwe report. I'd still be in a locker. <laughs> Uh, and so that the desire to um, the desire to kind of self sequester or to live, uh, if you are a gifted kid, to kind of pick other gifted kids, and also adults do this. You know, they try to sh- to kind of corral you all together on the on the assumption that you're going to have shared interests and that intellect mm-hmm. is a kind of thing that that. Creates a commonality. A bond. Of course, I'll right. want to hang out with other people with similar test scores to me. Yeah, right. Test scores. Yay. Here well, we I mean, all are. Dumb people do it too. Dumb people want to hang out with other dumb people. Like, sure. look at Sturgis. <laughs> it's very timely when we recorded this, but probably not anymore. And and I think it would be maybe truer if you had a if you had a larger cross section. If a high school had nine thousand students in it instead of fifteen hundred or twenty five hundred. You might be able to form uh, social groups where it's just the people that scored really highly on their verbal aptitude test. You know that 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 could they, actually they just want to talk about Edgar Allan Poe and right. Oscar Wilde. It could comprise a group of fifteen close friends. But in your typical high school, what you end up with is yeah, the end of the bell curve is going to be yeah, a bunch of people that are really into dentistry or uh, <laughs> or trying to it's going to be yeah, it's going to be a lot yeah. of math and science. I mean, it, it just won't it's just you won't have the same interests just because you have the same test scores. Well, it may not surprise you that um that the topic of today's show Mensa, which is an organization devoted to or an organization of high IQ people globally a global and non-denominational organization bringing together people who are um, who have been tested and measured to be in the 98th percentile of intelligence. 90, so the top two percent of humanity. The top two percent of people uh, who have been who have taken intelligence tests and been found to be exceptional. And Mensa doesn't test you, right? You you bring your own tests? No, Mensa does have its own oh, you have to proctored exam. You have to go to a room? No, you can you can uh, apply to Mensa using the the test results of a whole variety of different intelligence tests. But Mensa also will uh, will proctor an exam where you sit and take the Mensa test, which is proprietary and doesn't have like, there's no oversight because of course Mensa can, it's a private organization. They can do what they want. They can do what they want. Um, and they're, I think the, out of control. The, the Mensa test does involve like a belly crawl uh, <laughs> under some barbed wire while, 
Well, cannon shells go off over your head. Is there a swimsuit competition? I think there might be. I think there there's a discus uh, aspect. <laughs> discus. But Mensa was formed. God, I want I want you to just just take a wild guess. Where was Mensa formed? Mensa was formed in. Uh, I don't know, tri-state area, New York, New Jersey. No, I'm afraid not. Oxford University uh, is that's where. A, that's a pretty. So wait, Mensa's British. Uh, originally, Mensa. I, was, was I think British. I assumed I was American. I had no idea. Uh, it it does have a kind of American feeling to it, sure. Because American Mensa became a pretty like broad-shouldered. Um, quadrant of mensa and and we'll see why in a second although you know it fits in with my ideas of cerebral britain and people on people on panel shows yeah be uh, knowing difficult things about about uh, devonian fish and that was where it's uh, that's a uh, mensa international is still headquartered in Caythorpe, uk um and mensa international is a, is sort of a separate organization from uh, mensa britain which is headquartered nearby in Wolverhampton. So it's like the scouting movement? There's, yeah, there's a, sort there's of. There's different little patrols in every country? There, there are, right. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Wolverhampton, but it's not where you would, you would think to locate Mensa. Um, I, I actually played a show in Wolverhampton once, and I, I can't remember. I don't remember walking out of there thinking, boy, Wolverhampton is really where the, where the UK shines its brightest lights. I mean, they have a soccer team, but I, that's all I know about it. Yeah. West Midlands, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Sort of there in the Birmingham, general Birmingham. Uh, but, but Mensa formed kind of like, uh, let me ask you this at any point in your, uh, in your young life, I'm talking about high school, college and the immediate aftermath. Did you ever kind of sit with a, with a like person and think, God, wouldn't it be great if we just had like a little club of people that, that kind of had the these interests that we could sit and chit chat. No, no. See, this is my problem. This is this is Buzzy Cohen, right? I, Buzzy Buzzy's always trying to start a little group of of people that all wear bow ties and tortoiseshell glasses. Buzzy wants the Umbrella Academy or something. He wants to be Professor <laughs> he Xavier. Does. He does. Uh, you know, that, I mean, that's not true. My close friends in high school were, I think, smart kids who liked to read, who had ideas, who had takes. You know, a certain type of school newspaper kind of kid. But, uh, you know, every experience after that where I really got drawn towards the end of the bell curve, and I, I never had debate club or whatever. So I'm thinking mostly of like Quiz Bowl, which is very much the, the, Mensa, the Mensa long tail of that bell curve. Uh, I really constantly felt like the more rarefied it got, the, the less I wanted to, to hang out with Boy, them. Boy, you're telling me. And I, I don't want to sound snotty about it because they were really good at quiz bowl and they knew a lot of stuff, but something about their sensibility, you know, it was, it did not become easier to find people who were funny, right. who, uh, who were chatty at that, at that end of the bell curve. If you can imagine two, two, uh, Oxford undergraduates feeling like within Oxford, they needed to form a group of like, <laughs> I'm so sick of these dummies, <laughs> gifted kids. Uh, it gives you a sense of kind of where where Mensa got its start, and this is in the immediate aftermath of World War II, 1946. So we're talking about Britain in a time of rationing, uh, like a, a mostly destroyed economic, and in a lot of ways, the city's kind of still smoldering from the war. By the way, the World War has had a huge part in uh, the popularization of intelligence testing. Did you know this? That you know, it was the, it was the army that started to want to classify people, you know, like a kind of a wonderlick thing where, you know, do these 20 questions and we know if you're 
signal core material or, right. or whatever. And so, you know, that was the first place that hundreds of thousands of Americans, and I presume British subjects as well, took intelligence tests. Uh, and I think it was kind of World War One era. And it really took the West by storm, this idea that a little puzzle would tell you what kind of a person you were. It's kind of the same thing that powers horoscopes, I think. Well, and I, uh, a lot of that data that the that the armies collected about incoming soldiers ha- ended up sort of spawning all kinds of investigation into the human, the, the breadth of, I mean, initially just like men, but you have, and young men, all within the age, between the ages of 16 and 26. But all of a sudden you had data, you had so, so much yeah. data to play with, and you could then watch these people grow older, see you know, try to figure out like how, so the guys that die from head wounds, do they have anything in common? Is it, is it only blue eyed people that die from b- bullets between the eyes? Maybe we should put uh, contact lenses in. I, and I guess I never thought about this before, but you created a whole generation, particularly in America of, of uh, organizational leaders who got their start running organizations in the military. Right. And that really explains a lot about mid-century America that, that kind of all of our bureaucracies were based on, the War Department and then the Defense Department, like and and Pentagon style solutions to problems. Sure, you became a corporal because you you got a good score on that test, and that's still true in the military. You go take that test test, and they decide whether you're going to be infantry or whether you're going to be intelligence. Today we just do it for driving, and that's about it. Yeah, too bad that we don't do it for gun ownership. I'm trying to think of the last time I took a test where anything kind of hinged on like there's still citizenship tests. Right, you and, didn't have to take one of those though. No, your I, citizenship was assured. Thank you. Uh, but there's really not a lot of places like that anymore where it seems like every time you sign a business contract, it's kind of an intelligence test because <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you think you could you, be signing away something really stupid. Yeah. I mean, an entertainment business, uh, like contract is always a test of what you didn't think of. Cause you're like, Oh yeah, well I got total control over the album artwork. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't control the rights to your music. And this is maybe a too specific example, but. I think there's probably things like that in other small business, you know, in other kinds of entrepreneurial fields. Yeah, there must be. I mean, every day logging onto Twitter used to feel like a fun intelligence test, and now it feels like a like some kind of test to whether or not you're going to be allowed onto the off world or not. <laughs> yeah, now people are shooting at you there. But the initial idea of Mensa, so uh, the two men that that uh, that formed it, Roland Barrel, who was an Australian who ended up being a lawyer. In Australia, and Doctor Lancelot Ware, Lancelot Ware, wonderful. was he a chimpanzee? Doctor Lancelot Ware, who maybe not surprisingly, also a lawyer, a British lawyer. Uh, the two of them wanted to put together a group of like-minded um, smarties, and they wanted it to be a uh, they wanted it to be sort of a classless society. They did they they didn't want it to to be just another sort of Oxford group of, of privileged. This one's a meritocracy is the idea. It's a meritocracy, but they had the expectation that, and I think this was maybe the, the, the dying years of this expectation that naturally the highest IQs would be of (laughs) aristocratic people or, or a a kind of, aristocracy of the if it's of so, manner if it's social they want to hang out with their kind of people yeah but also i i think uh, the the um 
the bias was that if you were intelligent, and we see this a lot, even now, if you are intelligent, you will have refined tastes just by definition. You don't... You'll order a certain way at a restaurant. You'll yeah. vote a certain way. You don't like classical music because it's, um, because it's just the, the social expectation of your group. You like it because you're smart enough to like it. And I think um, Roland Barrel pretty quickly uh, expressed some disappointment that... The, the people that tested into Mensa... Some of them like jazz or something? <laughs> well, yeah, they just weren't maybe of the caliber... They weren't of the, the social caliber that he expected. Lancelot Ware said that he was disappointed that so many of the early members of the group just wanted to sit around solving puzzles, which he thought was like uh, kind of a dumb... Like, the, like a brute... That's funny. Example of what intelligence is. But that's the Mensa stereotype. You know, that's the kind of person you're going to get. But of course he didn't know. He's the, he was the last person not to know what a Mensa person was like. And then he inflicted them on us. I think he thought that Mensa would be a group of, um, of Thomas Hobbes's and John Locke's who sat around, uh, philosophers. Yeah. and And just sort of like doing chemistry while they talked about the nature of man. And what he got was a lot of people that, that, that wanted to, Solve quizzes and it's fill the thing out about intelligence forms. tests. Intelligence yeah. is so complicated that a high score on an intelligence test gets you a kind of person who is very good at taking tests more than anything else. And this is this gets to the heart of the question of what is what we call IQ or an intelligence quotient. How do you measure intelligence and how effective? You know, and are those tests just measuring um, your ability to take those tests? They're they're kind of two two factors i guess when you when you think about an intelligence test one of them is is the test reliable is it internally consistent if you give an intelligence test to a 10 year old and then that same test to that person at 20 and at 30 does it measure a consistent thing mm-hmm. um and also if you give 10 intelligence tests to a 10 year old do they more or less agree do their scores sort of correlate or is there, if there's wild variation, you know that, that these tests aren't reliable or, or, um, yeah, it should produce some kind of bell curve like distribution and IQ tests as they, as they have refined are extremely reliable in that they tend to measure more or less consistent results, um, throughout, you know, a person's life and they, uh, they they tend to be fairly consistent with one another, and well, the ones that aren't are kind of kicked out of the of the running. What about a broader thing where you try to measure kinds of real world competencies or real world success using IQ scores? Well, so this is the other aspect of a of an IQ test. It, reliable just means that it's that it's con- internally consistent. But is IQ really a a measurement of? Yeah, is it a good stand in for anything? Yeah, besides certainly, is it a predictor of of um, success. And what, what you find is that in general, people that have, um, advanced degrees that do higher level kind of professional work that work in academia do have average higher scores. You can do the sort of Japanese thing of, of assessing aptitude and ascribing that to certain strata of, of, work life 
You, um, you need to go to this kind of a high school because your score was between 115 and 124. Well, so now that's, that's the kind of reverse engineering of it that doesn't necessarily follow, right? Because yeah, it's just too blunt an instrument, right? If you test all architects, you will find that your average IQ for architects is 115 or 120, as opposed to your average IQ for carpenters, which is closer to 100. But it doesn't mean that if you score 100, you're going to be a carpenter or a better carpenter and that it precludes you being an architect. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the desire of people that that do this intelligence The system testing. will run smoother if they could do that. Yeah, they right. They would know exactly how to – what new class system to create for us. Just and, what we need. and Japan does do this and, you, and some European nations. I mean it is, it is the um, – Yeah, very early you get on a, an academic track. An academic track, right. Yeah. And, if it's, and if it's clear that you don't need to – go to college. Uh, let's not waste our time and resources sending you to college. You've, you've reached the extent of how education is going to be useful. So now, you which, know, which is get a little bleak and dystopian. It's very much against the implicit American ideal that boy, if I just put my mind to it, I can be anything I want to be. That's right. And in the, in the United States, we still, um, Test scores are used to determine what quality of unit, what quote unquote quality uh, of university you can attend. But even even then, there are a lot of other things taken into consideration. But it it at at no level in the United States do we think that intelligence tests should keep you should, out should close door, of yeah. university. There's a university for everyone here. As a layperson, I mean, everyone who can afford it. I guess that's that's our that's oh, our that's right. the, that's the American way. <laughs> As a layperson, it seems to me the reason why this is a blunt instrument is because IQ is measuring some things that can contribute to success. But you could make up for those with skills in other areas that IQ does not measure. You know, uh, somebody who's really good at forging social connections, you know, might have a great managerial career ahead of them, despite the fact that their, you know, their SAT math score was under 500 or whatever. You sure. Know? This, is the, this is the issue of, is IQ the main measure yeah. of our abilities? And uh, even in our own lifetimes, the rise of a kind of resistance to IQ as a measurement with the introduction of ideas like a social IQ or a um, street smarts or emotional IQ, which became a very popular topic of conversation in the last 20 years. And that's also a cluster of skills that we're just saying, it's just shorthand for things IQ doesn't measure, but that you might want, our organization might want in some or all of its people. And IQ itself, uh, the, the youngest members of Mensa um, the youngest members of Mensa right now, uh, there's a there's a girl, the, the youngest American Mensa member is Christina Brown, and she was admitted to Mensa at the age of two years. What? Uh, Adam Kirby is the youngest member in the United Kingdom, also two years old when he first joined Mensa and then they're, was- They're not men, more like boysa and they're, girlsa. They're girlsa, right? Child, toddlersa. And the idea that you could, at two years old, take a child who's clearly precocious, right? And the, the only way that this would happen is that at one and a half years old, you say, listen, my kid is already reading uh, Joyce. Uh, like <laughs> Joyce and explaining it to me. My kid has taught themselves algebra, help me, because I feel out of my depth. And, and that does happen. It does happen. Prodigies and are a thing. There's also a, I think, a lot of pressure on parents to feel like, wow, if I do have a super kid. I need to challenge them in ways that are that the system 
And my background don't provide, right? Yeah, and and maybe I'm doing a, a disservice to the world in not being able to, to to take this kid to Professor Xavier's school and have them become one of the great people of of all time. And instead, I'm sitting here trying to, uh, you know, show them how to build castles with blocks or whatever. I think my parents felt that very keenly. Yeah. It wasn't just that they wanted to brag at parties; they wanted to make sure I was, uh, you know, their kids weren't bored at school. My my parents did too, and you know, and. Uh, Unfortunately, also, my parents had the kind of hubris of smart people themselves who felt like, no, 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 we can, we can handle this. Like, this is, this will be fun. I'm Professor X. I mean, I, I know, I know a couple of kids whose father was, uh, you know, was doing brain research in the sixties who would sit them in front of like boxes that he'd built of flashing colored light, trying to stimulate their, <laughs> like a, you know. This is a supervillain origin. Like, like that's the five minutes of the horror movie before something awful happens to that yeah. dad. It's, you know, it's kind of incredible when you, when you hear these two girls talk about the stuff that they went through in the 60s and 70s is their dad was like, here, okay, put this one in your mouth, and then I'm just going to turn the electricity up a little <laughs> bit, and you tell me if you see any colors. <laughs> Although one of them became Paul Allen's chief librarian, so maybe it did work. Oh, it all comes together. Yeah. I think she's on the show more than I am. Yeah, she's nice. She's effectively a co-host of the show. We love, we love talking about No, no, no. She, she, only, she only comes in every once in a while. But, um, but, but uh, thinking about measuring the IQ of a two-year-old, yeah. and then imagining that that is a measurement of something that's going to remain constant so that at 12 and at 22, they're still going to be as, um, because IQ isn't measuring your ability to read your ability to reference Joyce. It's measuring a kind of like almost pre-verbal potentials. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ability to solve puzzles, to see patterns, to recall, Things it's a it's a, a test of a of a lot of different very basic basic skills cognitive things that, and it's depressing the idea that that might be set at two we don't yeah. want to think of ourselves that way no no you don't and 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 in that sense it does not really correlate to future success in a lot of the ways that we think of in modern society right you don't have a clap people have been having their IQ tested for many many years and you don't see um, you don't see any ability to pull kids out at the age of four and say, this person's going to be a top corporate leader or politician or general or scientist. Um, because as often as not, those skills or those abilities rather don't translate to success. There's a lot of reverse yeah. engineering. And this still might be an improvement over the, our previous system, which was to do it based on their last name. Right. Or yeah, how rich their dad was exactly, or yeah. whether or not their dad was smart. Is uh, There's kind of a reverse effect. And I don't know if you're aware, this is kind of a stereotype I've seen in kind of comedic takes on Mensa, which is despite the remarkable aptitude of these people and their amazing times on crosswords, that does not always correlate with their real world achievement. And in right. fact, there's kind of a reverse effect you see where you've assembled the world's smartest people for this little, uh, get together or meetup and none of them seem to have jobs. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting question just to look at your own situation. You found this completely sort of unique path or not unique, there's three people a day who do it, but 
to find a path onto the Jeopardy program, had you not found that outlet, sure. you'd be a computer programmer? Yeah. And computer programmer mildly that Mildly successful, mildly unhappy computer programmer who, you know. Because you, you didn't, you weren't regarded within your, within your professional sphere as being an incredibly gifted computer programmer. Correctly. Right. Yeah. So you were, you had found computer programming because that was a place where your intelligence and, and kind of aptitude. It's like my son looking at dentistry. It seemed like there would be jobs there for the next 20 years. Yeah, and you'd just work in there. So you, and, and so there are people that have these tremendous talents that don't find their way to the Jeopardy program because, because the reason you wanted to go on Jeopardy is that you grew up watching Jeopardy as a kid, right? Yeah. And that's, and that is very much the Mensa type. Like if you watch Jeopardy, you can see what are the jobs those people have. There's a lot of lawyers. You mentioned Lancelot and, and Guinevere, whatever the other guy's name was. <laughs> right. Like those guys were attorneys. And that's very common. Like these kind of broad-minded, polymath, problem-solving, aimless, gifted kids often end up in at law. So that, that was where I was supposed to go. Law was- For the same reason? Everybody just assumed I would be a lawyer. From the time I was four years old, like, you're going to be a great lawyer. We are both sons of lawyers. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? I'm four years old. No, no, no. You've already got it. I, we can see it in your eyes. Were you were you uh, arguing passionately why you should have an extra Chips Ahoy or something? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's just what you do when you're when you're young and people tell you you're gifted. You're like, well, let me let me argue with you. About let, let me go get my white matlock suit and I'll tell you why I should have another Chips Ahoy. <laughs> yeah. It seems like if you're telling me I'm gifted, let me prove that by by showing showing you how you're wrong. Uh, and uh, there's also many uh, academics, you know, teachers and right. professors, librarians. You know, a certain kind of, a certain kind of place where a bookish person can find success, and, and a certain kind of peace. I think, you yeah, know, right. Uh, that uh, and peers, and yeah, and and yeah, a sense of. Uh, but many of them don't see. That's the thing. The thing about Mensa is the assumption that you want peers, and I don't really know what to make of that because many of these people are kind of solitary. Yeah, and antisocial. Like, to, to some degree, they want peers because. You know, they want to be recognized for their gifts. Like it's a self-congratulatory thing. I got into Mensa and every time I, you know, I can tell people I'm in Mensa, the people there will see that I'm elite like them. Um, but it self-selects for people who have not gotten that kind of uh, validation elsewhere in life, right? Yeah. That's... Like if you already feel good about your intelligence and what it's done for you, you do not need to apply for Mensa. So there may be a sense in which it attracts a certain kind of wayward gifted child. That's the problem, right? If if Mensa were a group that only had uh the the most sort of if, if it was a Bilderberg group of smarties. Sparkling, yeah. Uh that that from within Mensa new patents were spewing out and and great the, novels. Yeah, and... the great works. Uh, and in those Mensa meetings, a biologist and a physicist got together and realized that all particles were the same. Um <laughs> I think we would have more respect for Mensa as a as an institution, and what it what often it feels like is that it's another, um, you know, it's a it's a form of bedecking one's blazer with a with a certain number of pins uh, that that are just meant to. I mean, they're 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 basically like self awarded. Medals of Honor. You're in, so you could say you got in. Some of the some of the Mensa members you may have heard of. I have a very short list of of people, and you can you can maybe give me a sense of whether you feel like this is the Mensa you envisioned. Okay. Um, Scott Adams, uh, the Dilbert, <laughs> Dilbert guy, Dilbert guy, off the deep end, Dilbert guy. Uh, Asimov was a member of Mensa, but that's a different time. That seems a know? different, like time, maybe right? fifty years ago. And he and he very much was tied to that identity of a 
being a polymath and, you know, he wrote a book about the Bible, but then another book about uh, cell biology and then another book about computers. And I think that, I think the era when Asimov was a member of Mensa was probably peak Mensa in the sense of it being, and I don't mean in terms of membership because membership keeps growing, but. But like a kind as kind of a New York smart set, an elite smart set. Right. A, 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 a group that had not yet demonstrated that it wasn't going to produce the great works. And we don't mean to imply that everyone out there with a Mensa card uh, is at a dead end in their life. No, but to achieve, uh, to achieve a, a, a score on an IQ test, and in general, like the Stanford Binet test, which is one of the, the major tests, IQ test. um, to join Mensa, it requires a score of 132 or higher. In in general, with a mean of one hundred, um, that's two percentile. Yeah, the second ninetieth percentile is one hundred and thirty five score. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of different tests. There's uh, the Weschler Intelligence Scale. There's uh, the Woodcock Johnson test. The <laughs> Kaufman test. Woodcock Johnson is uh, a bit much. Three times, I think. <laughs> the the uh, you know all these different sort of cognitive assessments. Um, and so you can, you know, you can find, I guess, find the test. Um, Mensa won't proctor their own exam for you more than once. You have one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow if you're going to take the Mensa test, but you can take tests over and over to, I mean, it's the SAT, you can, it, it, you benefit from studying for it. And from retaking it. Like, I, I think they found that if you just retake the SAT and don't pick up a book, or go to Princeton Review once, your average score goes up 30, 50 points. You're just more comfortable with the setting. Yeah, right. I think I should have retaken it. I only took it the It's not time. too late, John. Uh, here are some other Mensa members. Asia Carrera, the uh, the uh, former pornographic actress who uh, now has kind of gone on to be a general sort of celebrity person. She yeah, went to it, Rutgers. In non-smarty worlds, Mensa does kind of convey a certain kind of smartness that it doesn't convey in smarty worlds. Right. So if you're coming from the world of, you know, pornography, you can be the porn star who's in Mensa and that everybody understands what is meant by that. Ah, she's the smart one in that field. Yeah. And Asia Carrera got, she was a national merit scholar. She got a 1440 on SAT based on the old scoring system. And, um, and so, you know, what makes it interesting, what makes that story interesting is that she went into pornographic movies, which is kind of like, uh, it's the juxtaposition of the two, the two things that, you know, that makes that, uh, an interesting story. But I'm sure there's an NFL guy in Mensa, you know, or a relief pitcher in Mensa. And that's kind of a, that's part of their ESPN profile. Yeah. There are a lot of, uh, you know, our friend, friend of the show, Marilyn Voss Savant, but, um, <laughs> friend of the show. you know, Adrian Cronauer, who oh, was good morning Vietnam, good morning Vietnam guy who was sort of a, rent, a relentless self promoter. Uh, that's and, who, that's who does it. Yeah. Relentless self promoters. Marilyn Vassavant. We saw in the Marilyn Vassavant episode, she's been very good at creating a mythos for herself around her smartness. Jimmy Saville, um, the, 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 the British, uh, British presenter, p- presenter and, and pedophile. <laughs> what, what's his show? Is he the car show? No. What's, what show is he on? No, no. That's you're thinking of, um, I don't know. They're uh, all named Graham. I think. Jimmy Savile was like a BBC guy, uh, top of the pops. Oh, he's top of the pops. He's a music guy. Okay. Right. No, you were thinking of, um, you're thinking of Jeremy Clarkson of Top Gear. Who is fame. not a pedophile. He's not a, as far as he's we not know. a pedophile, uh, but he is, he is sort of a, 
sort of a nationalist, sort of vaguely racist, Britain first um, guy that makes a lot of people angry. I was a big fan of Top Gear, so it was it was not a surprise that he said a bunch of things that got him. It was not a surprise. You, you, you expect your idols to all be to all be um, quasi fascist. No, I only mean that I'd seen the show a bunch of oh, times, so I, I knew what I knew he was doing what, it on the air too. He sure was. I knew what his values. Why do they keep running over immigrants in yeah. those cars? He keeps saying a very strange thing about German cars. <laughs> uh, let's see. Who are some others? I mean, just a few others that kind of stand out. You've got Gina Davis, right? And oh, you yeah. you kind of can see that that Gina Davis would not only have a high IQ but also be a member of Mensa. I remember her. Yeah, the, I, I remember her doing the archery thing. You know, remember when she was very nearly an Olympic archer? Yeah, and it was clear that she was an actress who wanted to be, uh, you know, the the one in her field who also was a restless uh, explorer in other areas. Yeah, it, it's it's. Actually, the role that she plays, or no, no, I guess it's kind of a, a an inversion of the role that she plays in a field of their own. What is that movie a called? A League of Their Own. It's it's a kind of a, a reverse of the role she plays in A League of Their Own. She's she's very much a different. She's very she casts herself as very different from the other baseball players in A League of Her Own. Yeah, she started out kind of playing dumb bunny parts like in Tootsie, and then but she very quickly becomes like the you know, this kind of smart Sphinx, like, uh, you know, I'm thinking of accidental tourist or, you know, all these movies where she's, there's obviously a lot going on on the inside. And I don't know, I don't know how much that's just, uh, typecasting and how much she's actually, that, that actually, um, reflects her. I saw her in in an airport. I saw her in the Salt Lake airport once. I didn't ask. Did it blow her mind? Did did she blow your mind? Should I have asked? Uh, Buckminster Fuller also, uh, sort of a classic, like mid-century era. Expert on everything. Expert on everything. Right. But Mensa, and, and, and I kind of alluded to this, but American Mensa became a, uh, a sort of a separate entity. And it was the result of a woman by the name of Margot Seidelman, who took over as the director of Mensa USA uh, at a time in the early 60s when Mensa, like directing Mensa kind of meant managing the mailing list. Mensa is, although it hasn't produced that many Nobel laureates, it does produce a lot of magazines. American Mensa, I mean, there, there's the Mensa oh, like, Research oh, Journal. Oh, four members. Yeah, there's the Mensa Magazine, the yeah. Mensa Bulletin, the it Mensa creates, World it, Journal. It creates its own little insular world yeah. rather than improving ours. And that's good. We don't have to hang out with those people. And and as you said, Mensa became like a, the font of a million puzzles and puzzle solvers at, uh, eventually Mensa started publishing its own puzzle journals, uh, the Mensa mind games. I think, I think I'm in favor of it doing that. Yeah. Like it's, you know, if, if real life doesn't have enough fun puzzles for you to solve, let Mensa be your recreational, uh, stand in for that. And Mensa started having gatherings, the, the, um, the annual gathering, which is kind of Sturgis. It's basically the Sturgis of Mensa. Um, it happens on July fourth, or Nerdgis. in Canada. In Canada, it's on Canada Day. There are there's a a famous sort of Mensa gathering that happens every Halloween in Chicago. Is it ever uh, a da- is there a dating component? There must be. I mean, I'm sure that Mensa people love to to Mensa. I mean, think about Marilyn Voss Savant. The Mensas meet right? the women's. The, the Jarvigs. Do you know what the gender breakdown is? Yeah, it's about 66% men, 34% women. And there's no, in, at least in that calculation, no uh, sense of how many sort of uh, gender fluid people there are. 
but in the in the in the rough aggregate, it's about two thirds men, mm-hmm. um, which isn't a surprise. Makes it a difficult dating. I, and we say that not because we think men are smarter, but because men are more prone to join an organization yeah. that allows them to brag about their smartness. Right. That's right. Because it, because of the way we acculturate both men and women. Um, but but American Mensa uh, under the um, under the sort of helm of Margot Seidelman, the uh, Iron Fist of Margot. Yes, she she uh, she was the director of Mensa from American Mensa from 1961 to 1989. She became sort of known as the as the the mother of American Mensa. So much so that when she retired, um, the staff went from uh, basically her and a couple of people doing her copying to 36 full-time employees. Uh, Because there's dues. Is that right? There are dues. There's, you know, there's a lot of, like anything involving people with high IQs, there's just a lot of papers being shuffled around. Um, She created a a little jobs bureaucracy for her uh, and her friends. Well, she, she, um, you know, she needed to manage the American Mensa has about 60,000 members. There are 140,000 members of Mensa worldwide. I mean, it really is not it's a big. Th- it's not a thing you can just join because you want to. It uh it's one of the rare organizations that um it's not a professional organization, right? You don't be it's you don't join just because you you became a real estate agent. It is an honor. An honor, right. Um and strangely or perhaps not strangely, uh, Margot Seidelman was not a member of Mensa. She couldn't get in? No. She was the director. Was it, was it a coup? It, she, just, um, she just answered an ad and was really good at running the program, but didn't qualify to join. Well, there's your data point about IQ predicting real world competence. It was only, um, it was only upon her retirement that the, that the membership granted her an honorary, I think the only honorary membership in Mensa. All these aimless, uh, uh, super smart puzzle people needed a regular to, to get the newsletter running on time. That's right. The ultimate muggle. And that concludes Mensa. Entry 775.PR1320, certificate number 43519, in the omnibus. Futurelings, we were, uh, speaking of things that anybody could join, social media drew in John and me in the late, in the early 21st century. No barrier to entry there. Clearly. Uh, and you can find, uh, I mean, to get a blue check mark, sure. Well, the barrier to entry there was, I don't know, somebody that works at Twitter yeah. ever heard of you? <laughs> I, had to call. I, I had to send a few emails. Uh, you, so you could find our uh, our tweets and John's Instagram photos and whatnot at uh, Ken Jennings and at John Roderick and jointly at Omnibus Project on these social media uh, platforms. Uh, you could send us email, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Often uh, feedback from those emails helps form the addenda episodes we've started doing monthly for our patreon supporters if you feel like eight or nine omnibuy a month is not enough for you first of all mm-hmm. uh you probably need to join mensa because it seems like you have a lot of spare time uh but second of all <laughs> you should become a patreon supporter of the show 
should your financial circumstances allow and receive many of the fine perks that come with membership. That's patreon.com slash omnibus project. Uh, we receive physical mail from time to time. Here's a letter I got to John, but I, I don't think you want to read this on the air, but I just wrote, I found that in the, in the, I think that came a few months ago and I just found it in the side pocket of my car door. It's a, uh, it's on purple stationery. And for all the reasons you would expect, the, the prose is a little bit purple oh, as well. Oh, it is a little purple. Uh, but we also got, while you peruse that, let's see, somebody in Linden, Washington, up by the Canadian border. Who was this? Todd sent to, he's got nicknames for us, John Goldenrod Roderick and Ken Punchdown Jennings. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, Goldenrod and Punchdown. He sent well, us a... Pretty si- good detective. He sent us with no explanation, unless, unless I lost the letter, he sent us with no explanation or cover letter at all, uh, a series of uh, commemorative Bruce Lee stamps. Oh. From two countries where Bruce Lee is, is huge. Do you want to guess? Uh, well, why don't we say uh, hmm. Taiwan? And? Hong Kong. Very close. Gambia and Antigua Barbuda. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> you're just naming countries that might want to generate revenue with, uh, with weird stamps, I think, is how that works. The Gambia with their Bruce Lee stamps. So if you need a series of 75-stamp Antiguan stamps or, mm-hmm. uh, or D3-level Gambians, that Gambia apparently has a very complicated postal scale system. So are, you, here are nine D3 stamps. Are those photos of him, or are they representations of him painted on uh, on plywood? They look like kind of uh, airbrushed paintings. Look at them. Look at the middle Gambian stamp in particular, where he looks like a, a rising young Chinese Communist Party member. Oh, he does. He does. That, he that, looks that's like, him at UW with his with his nice short collegiate hair. Yeah, but at UW, was he wearing a, uh, like a mousy-tung blouse? Yeah, he was a Bond villain, I think. Hmm. <laughs> he was a Mensa member, and... He had such a great shag haircut as time wore on. Yeah, he was not troubled by little tendrils of hair touching him on the neck no, or, the ju- or the jumpsuit. He's what? so beautiful. I looked at he, here with, the, with, his, um, with his brill-creamed hair. Yeah, you don't see that much. But if you were doing martial arts, you probably would want brill-creamed hair, honestly. Well, yeah, I mean... It, you don't it would want be, it all flopping around. It would be another another way to defeat your opponent. You'd whack, <laughs> whack brill cream in his eyes. Ah! Ah! Huh! Anyway, what a wonderful job we have where people will just send us African Bruce Lee stamps with no explanation whatsoever. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really lovely. And this uh, and this this uh, mash letter here on the purple prose... Is oh, it wait. scented? It does, have a, it does have a scent. We did go to a lavender farm in that car yesterday, Ooh. so that may be post... That may be posts uh, mailing. Pretty good stuff there. So yeah, you can you can pour over those tonight. Yeah, merci uh, beaucoup. There's even a poem, or I'm I think that's a poem. It's structured like a poem. So you, did I read the address? So if you would like to send us African stamps with no explanation, uh, the mailing address in our era was PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. The Immensa of uh, Omnibus, by the way, is the Futurelings mm-hmm. subreddit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it selects for Discord or the Discord of the subreddit. Maybe it's, I don't know if it's representative of, of listeners to the show in our era, or if it's just uh, like Mensa, the ones with a lot of free time. I have to say, I, I emailed you in the middle of the night last night saying that I was on the Futurelings Facebook page, and there was a lot of heated disagreement, there, which we... There was some drama. We almost never see that. Uh, the Futurelings generally have a have a very lighthearted time with one another, being smart and, and trading memes and jokes, but people started talking about Harry Potter 
And boy, that thread went off the rails fast. There were there was character assassination. Well, were they talking about events within the Harry Potter universe, or were they talking about the trans-exclusionary radical feminism of the author? A, a little bit of that came in, um, the turfness of, uh, of the author, but that was not even the most controversial thing. I think a lot of the conversation begins imagining which house you or I might be a member of. Oh. People take that very seriously. That's as important as the Weschler intelligence test. My daughter is a very proud Hufflepuff with a Hufflepuff hat, and she does not enjoy jokes about hmm. uh, either Hufflepuffs or the other houses. Like why there's one house for all the losers. She doesn't really want to examine that. No, that's right. And I think that there's quite a bit of debate about whether you... you I mean, which house you're in and which house I'm in and... Which house are you in? Well, I have no idea. They, I'm not a Slytherin, I don't think, but people keep saying that I am. Imagine and then other people are mad about so that. So the J.K. Rowling view of humanity apparently is that there's four kinds of people. Okay. Good, smart, uh, dumb, and evil. Good, smart, dumb, evil. Okay. And, and those are different. You can, it's not two axes where you can be good, smart, or dumb, evil. Right. It's There's four kinds of people. Good, smart, dumb, evil. And what are you? I assume I'm a Ravenclaw. I don't know. Which is smart? I think. And then I'm not evil, for sure. And I don't think I'm dumb. You're more evil than me. I don't think I'm good, exactly. But smart? I don't think that works either. So what? I end up being evil just because I'm... Because you wouldn't first describe me as good or smart? There's some lip Maybe. service to the fact that, that they're not all evil, but really they are. The evil ones aren't all evil? Yeah, I mean, even though she had, what, a million, two million words to introduce one who was not evil, it didn't really happen. I feel like throughout my life, I was very definitely chaotic good, and as time's worn on, little by little, I feel like I trend a little bit toward chaotic neutral, and I was distressed to discover this about myself because I really identified as chaotic good. And to be chaotic neutral felt a little bit like, aren't we just saying chaotic evil? <laughs> like, how, like, as soon as you leave the realm of good into neutral, it's you're, you start to create, or I mean, chaos starts to take on a very different I would have tint. said that since I knew you were more of a neutral good trending toward chaotic good, you, you, you. you lost all your... Uh, you lost all your, uh, we, we can do this within the system yeah. convictions. Recently. I do feel like neutral good has been, has been a place where I felt like, yes, okay. You know, like that's what I aspire to be. Neutral good is my, is my desire, but, um, chaotic good is my, is my instinct or my temperament, but chaotic neutral. That's not how any, that's not how I want to live. That just seems like. You can avoid it all in Mensa. That's the path to destruction. Well, I can Mens av I can avoid it all in Slytherin, I guess. Mensa just has evil. no Mensa has no houses or uh, or indeed uh, uh, morality well, of any kind. Right. They, they just want a slightly better time on the on the on the word search. Here's what I don't like: sitting around solving puzzles. I don't like we, it. <laughs> what if there's two groups of people, Mensa and not? And right. this podcast has one Mensa and one not. Well, here's what I do like. I like Sudokus and I like crossword puzzles, but I don't like those puzzles where it's like, here's seven toothpicks, try and make a try and make an Eiffel Tower out of it. I don't either, and that's because I'm good at the crosswords and I'm not good at those. That's the, right. really the only reason. Like all my aesthetics can be explained by like what I find easy. But how do you like Sudokus? Yes or no? Uh, you you don't There's no um emergent there's no emergent, what, uh, 
solution. Nothing is born into the world when you finish a Sudoku. That's true. The way a crossword feels like you have helped birth something. You, you've produced something. Um, the letters all make words. Sudoku, In Sudoku is the like numbers pr- just make pretend math. Just make other numbers. Yeah, yeah. but it is. But you could you, do Sudoku with colors. They put in numbers to make you feel smarter, but really, you could do it with nine colors. Yeah, it's but it feels like a path. You have you've you have cut a path through the wilderness when you solve a Sudoku a little bit. Yes, but and I like seeing. Uh, you know, I recently watched the video everybody's watching of the clever Sudoku variant. Did you see this? Mm-mm. I'll send you the link. Of, you know, a very clever Sudoku variant where. The British host is at every turn feels like he's stymied. But wait, no, I see if there, maybe perhaps there is one more thing, and it's it's very dramatic. Have you ever played Threes, the uh, the, the the phone phone app game? Nope. I'll let you play Threes. It's a it's a similar kind of like why am I doing this? Yeah, but, well, phone games all seem designed for people with brain damage, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> like what what is what? How have I spent five hours doing this? Like TV is making me think too much. So what if I could just. Yeah. Swipe my finger whenever uh, a red thing hit a blue thing. It's the type of thing you can do and talk on the phone at the same time and feel like you're doing a passable job at both. I guess that's true. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. It barely qualifies as a civilization as it is. Asterisk. Although we're coming up on a big referenda, aren't we, Ken? We're- oh, yeah. We're recording this in late summer, but this is going to come out. Right before Halloween and therefore the election. Yeah, there's a big... And, and this is our Halloween show, right? Um, yeah, Mensa, Mensa was our Halloween show. Yeah, so... Ooh, <laughs> dress, dress up as a spooky Sudoku. <laughs> uh, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear, which is really, at this moment, just the wrong results on Tuesday. <laughs> on next week's election. Um, we hope, that, uh, hope and pray that... Uh, that Whatever the whatever the result you fear the most on Tuesday, we hope and pray it doesn't. Our dystopian podcast will be a lot less fun <laughs> on Tuesday if things go wrong. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word because this show was shut down by the Gestapo. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.